Welcome to Daybreak Devotions, a podcast version of the daily radio ministry of the McLeansville Baptist Church with your host, Pastors Mike Barnett and Corey Cantrell. Welcome back to Daybreak Devotions on this wonderful midweek Wednesday morning. So glad to be back with you, and I'm glad that you're here, AP. I'm glad that I'm here, too. You know, the rumor on the street is is that you may have someone else guest hosting with you this week. I just want to go ahead and bring that out and kind of let it be known. That's the scuttlebutt around the water cooler. Hmm. like how you threw all those, like, various analogies from different worlds together there. That's me. I'm a blender. Oh. Well, anyway... Uh, I have something very special today that I would like to do. All right. It's Wednesday, and I would like to introduce a new segment. Ooh. Yep. It's a great day to introduce a new segment to Daybreak Devotions. Something to keep uh, the listener not only... I mean, who was it that said... I think it was uh, Jeremiah Stringer was a guest on our Code of Man podcast, and he said that a great podcast you either educate or entertain. Mm-hmm. The really great podcast you do both. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how entertaining we are, because I've noticed very few people laugh at my Friday fun day <laughs> jokes, but we certainly want to educate you. So today, I'm introducing a new segment that will be on Wednesdays. I'm calling it Wednesday's Word of the Week. Ooh. And so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this week's Wednesday's Word of the Week. This week, the word is nomophobia. Nomophobia. Would you like to take a guess at what nomophobia means? It means you're not afraid of anything, no mo. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad we don't have that laugh track oh. available. That would have been perfect for that. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you got a few courtesy chuckles out there in Radio Land. Nomophobia. I, I think that's a good guess, but it actually is a noun which means anxiety caused by being without access to a functioning mobile phone. Nomophobia. That's a legit clinically clinically diagnosed phobia? It's in the dictionary. Yep, nomophobia. Boy, that why that do might... you think that every you how many times have you left your house and thought, oh, "I forgot my phone." No, and then I you go back and get it. I I get the uh the attachment that is developed to them. But I can't say that it's a legit phobia. Like, I'm not afraid of not having it, but it's more of a nuisance and an inconvenience. Well, let me ask you a question. Okay. If you leave the house, realize you've forgotten your phone, how far down the road would be too far for you to turn around and go back and get it? Well, I think there's multiple layers. It depends on what I have left the house for. So, like, if I am going out of town for the week, I'm probably going to go back and get it. If I'm just running up to the store, if I'm further than about... 45 seconds away from the house, I'm going to be like, I'll just get it when I come back. You might you might be safe from nomophobia All right. right now, but watch out because it is catchy. <laughs> it's going around, nomophobia. Now, I, I typically only want to give one word for the week on Wednesday, one Wednesday word for the week, but I want to give credit to my esposita who sent me this word, but uh, that's wife in, uh, in Spanish talk. Good yeah. deal. Yeah. And uh, so, but immediately when I read that, nomophobia, anxiety caused by being without access to a functioning mobile phone, I remembered this word, which is 
uh, engraved on a coffee mug someone gave me some years ago. And I said, well, if you take nomophobia and combine it with this, this word is distretto. Distretto is an adjective, an intense feeling of anxiety experienced upon realizing that there is no coffee left in the house. No coffee, no phone. I mean, it sounds like... It's a nervous breakdown waiting to happen. Which is ironic because your phone and coffee are what speeds your life up and cause you to live at a hectic pace. You think if you get rid of both of those things, the heart would kind of calm down, blood pressure would lower. But hey, who can explain these things? These are, uh, these are the ways of men. These are unusual times. That's exactly right. Well, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is this week's Wednesday Word of the Week. All right, well, we got to get on with our studies in Psalm 119 today, and we are in the next section, verse 25 through verse 32. And I believe you came in here for radio once or twice already this week expecting to come to this section, so you're probably, like, loaded for bear on this one. It's more that uh, there was just something that jumped out to me that I'm curious to, to get your thoughts on. Well, I am here to give my thoughts. All right. Are we ready to jump into it? Do we want to do a song today, or are we just going to go right after it? I I say let's tackle it. Let's tackle let's it. Let's just go. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. We're going to tackle it. Now, here's something that I want to share with, uh, with, with you and with the listener. For me, the approach to this study, what I found helpful, let me, let me explain a little bit of what I'm, what I'm leading into here. Let me give context. When you sit down and say you were going to do this study through a section of eight verses, to just open the Bible and read, let's just say it's these verses here, 25 through 32. When you read those eight verses, you may read through them once, twice, three times, and be like, you know, I, I, what is the point here? What am I after? As you're trying to get God's Word for you or the, the message behind that section that you're studying and meditating on, this is going to be so simple, but I think it's helpful. It's to look at that eight verses, and what's helped me is identify which verse encapsulates the point. What is the verse that will then help open up my understanding in my heart for the rest of the section? So, for example, when we come to this section, verse 25 through 32, for me, verse 26 is the key verse. It's the verse on which the whole thing hinges. Now, I am sure somebody else studying this, very likely they could come through it, and another verse would do that for them. But for the sake of my own studies, this was the verse that helped help the whole thing, kind of it's the hinge that the whole thing swings on. I have declared my ways, and thou hurtest me. Teach me thy statutes. Now, the reason I say that that's the key verse for me is because what I come to understand in this, in this studying of the way of the devout heart, this section of Psalm 119, I believe, shows us that the way of the devout heart is to be the kind of person that's continually seeking course correction in our life. Now, as I have gone on ahead in these studies, even, even this morning, the section that I was in, I'm seeing that as a reoccurring theme in Psalm 119, that we constantly need course correction because, and perhaps we've already said this, even when you're walking in the way of the devout heart, even when you're seeking to be close to Christ and be faithful, it doesn't mean you get everything right. Mm -hmm. There's constantly the need for course correction. You yourself used to think that you would one day be a fighter pilot, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you were a pilot of any kind, my understanding, I've never flown a plane, but those, those planes, and I, I know a lot of it's done probably electronically now with computers, but 
if you were, say, flying one of those like single-engine planes, those pilots have to cons- constantly make course corrections as they're going along. Because if you've got a true north bearing and that plane was to alter just a, just a half a degree, well, over the course of 100, 200, 300 miles, you're going to be way off that, that uh, true north bearing. Mm-hmm. So instead of, I guess that'd be zero degrees, right? That's true north. You might be over here at you know, 170 or 150 you know, over time. And I, I think that, I, th- I hope I'm saying that clearly, the slightest deviation from the proper course over time will lead to a massive shift in your heart's level of devotion and nearness to God. So the point is constant course correction is needed. And that's important, especially because it's so easy for us to make statements like, well, is this really that big of a deal? I mean, it it's not that bad. When we understand what you're talking about, that just the slightest missing the mark of the direction and the path that God would lead us on is ultimately going to bring us way far away from the intended destination that he has for us. Well, now all of a sudden the question is not, well, is this really that bad? The question is, is this off of the mark at all? Because anything that's off the mark, even slightly, is going to have major ramifications. Yeah, if you're, if you're the pilot flying that plane, the people in the back or the people in the passenger seat or whatever may not understand how significant just a slight shift of the wind could be. Mm-hmm. But as the pilot, you know everything matters, and so you do have to take it all into consideration. I guess the um, I guess the practice that we're looking at here as being in the in terms of spiritual discipline. I, I, have we ever classified repentance as a spiritual discipline? I, I don't. I, I know not in the Psalm one nineteen study. Yeah, uh, confession. We often talk about confession being a spiritual discipline, and and they're they're almost that you almost can't have one without the other. Right. But repentance is the word, the theme that comes strongly to my mind as I study this section. Now, obviously, it's confession. When he says, Lord, I've declared my way. I, I've told you what I thought, what I felt. You heard me. And then there's that, that colon there, and it's like the shift of the gear. Obviously, mm-hmm. what I said was not right. Obviously, what I thought was wrong, Lord, and I'm acknowledging that. Now, teach me your way. That is... A, a such an accurate description of what repentance is. And I see in the expressions of verse 25 through 32 what could be called true repentance. He's saying ac- across this thing, let, let's, let's read the early verses. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. Quicken me, bring me back alive. I'm in the, I am on the bottom. I've, things have fell, fell apart. I need your help. I've declared my ways, and thou heardest me. Teach me thy statutes. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. I'm going to stop right there, save the last three verses for their own standalone point. The, the, the overall message here is he's saying, I've come to the end of my way. And it was a failure. I've failed in my way. I'm now lying in the dust. I've made my case, but my soul is weak, and I have been, I've been lying to myself all this time. And here's the, here's the confession part. Here's where the repentance has happened. Lord, I am tired of this. 
All I want is your way. Now, every person who's going to walk the way of the devout heart is going to experience this because we are much more sensitive to the deviations. Mm -hmm. We want to be right. And when we have gone our way for any amount of time and we've deviated off course that far, we're going to end up lying in the dust, realizing the mistakes that we've made. But thank God for grace and mercy that's new every morning so that we can come back to God. He lifts us out. I w There's so many verses that if I had more time, we could pull out of this, but how God just, you know, revives us. There's there's many passages on that. But Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. That's what God wants us to do. Commit our works to Him, and then He will take over. Now let's introduce the idea of repentance in a more specific way. Repentance is a way of life. And that's why I said earlier, have we or should we classify it as a spiritual discipline? I suppose it is. I'm... Mm -hmm. Certainly, if it's a regular practice that enables you to be able to do what you cannot do on your own, and sometimes repentance is absolutely necessary so we can access the grace of God. But it's an essential element in the way of the devout heart. Underline that point. If you're a listener taking notes, let me say it again. Repentance is a way of life for those that are walking the way of the devout heart. It is an essential element in this way. Now, let me define repentance. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, John the Baptist says to the people listening to him, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And what he says in that, he's saying that if there is repentance, there will be evidence in your life. Bring forth fruit that exemplifies, that proves that your repentance is real. Now the word repentance, do you remember the Greek word? I do not. It's a very important word to learn. We could make it the other Wednesday uh, word of the week today. But the word is metanoia, or mm -hmm. metanoia, metanoia. I got a little bit too much syllable in there. Metanoia, but it means, you know what it, you remember what it means. To change the mind. To change your mind, to change the way that you're thinking about things, to change the way you're perceiving things, to reverse a decision about something. Mm -hmm. There was a time in my life where this didn't bother me. I was fine with this. I was cool with this. But as I have walked in this path, this way of the devout heart, I've come to understand that that way is not right. So my thinking about that has changed. And the call here is for fruit that truly demonstrates repentance. The person who is in the way of the devout heart is one whose life is demonstrating an ongoing work of renewal in their mind, in their actions, they are, it is the spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness. And the reason that this is so important for this to be a, uh, a daily, regular practice of our life is this keeps us from reaching the point where, you know what, I've got it all figured out. Mm -hmm. I, I've arrived. If we stay in this mindset of, you know what, I'm constantly going to need to be changing my mind about something, it keeps us teachable. It keeps us sensitive to the leading in the Spirit of God. But once we get to where we think, Hey, I've arrived, I've got it, I've got it figured out, follow me, I've, I've been down this path, I've got it. Well, now all of a sudden God can't teach us anymore because we have now made ourselves unteachable and we're not growing any longer. And the case in point would be those who John was speaking to. Yes. Because in Luke's um, representation of it, he says in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. And listen to what he tells them. And he's talking to these Pharisees at the time very devoutly religious people, okay? Big difference in devoutly religious and devout to Jesus. But 
Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And listen, and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. In other words, John was getting ahead of these guys. Because as he was saying to them, you need to repent. You need to change the way you're thinking. Their mindset was, they began to say within themselves, huh, not me. I've got Abraham. We are true Jews. We belong to God. We're God's people. This isn't for me. I don't need to hear this. Do you think that that is something that happens among the people of God today? I would say that's something that happens on any given Sunday in every church across America, at least. That there's there's that notion that, oh, well, I mean, clearly this, this message isn't for me. It's not talking to me. And rather than taking self-evaluation of how could this message be applying to me, mm-hmm. instead we just throw up the guard of, yeah, I'm good, I can check out of this one. What would be the way that a modern Christian, professing Christian, would... They wouldn't, in other words, say, we have Abraham to our father. They would say what? They would say, I, I've, I'm born again. I've, I've trusted in Jesus. I, I'm good. I'm fine. Yeah, repentance is not for me. I've already repented. Right. What do I need to repent from? It's all been forgiven. Well, to, to press into that a little more, and then we'll, we'll go verse by verse through this, but to press into that a little more, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 to the church of Corinth. This is after, now this is, his, this is 2 Corinthians, but we know it to be his third letter to the church that he'd written that letter in between where he was correcting them on some things. This is what he says. For though I made uh, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Now, Paul talks about repenting there. In other words, Paul said, um, I, I'm not changing my mind about what I wrote. Though I, though I did struggle with it in the beginning, though I had wrestlings with it, I, I'm staying. What I wrote to you is what you needed to hear. And I rejoice that you were made sorry. I'm, I rejoice that it burdened your heart because, because that sorrow led you to repentance. You were made sorry after a godly manner. I don't know of any true pastor that wouldn't love to see the people in the church be made sorry in godly sorrow where they would begin to change their thinking, and when the thinking changes, the behavior changes. Yeah, because I think a lot of times the, the, the draw or the, or the thing that we want to be careful about is not being you know that guy that likes to be the hard preacher that you know we call them, uh, they're always shearing the sheep so much that now they're skinning the sheep. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not what the true shepherd is all about. We're not wanting to, to bring damage to the people just because, yeah, we want them to leave feeling like they're low-down scumbags. What's that old saying? We want uh, 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 guts on the wall, yeah. blood, on the, blood on the wall, guts on the floor, yeah, blood so, in the cracks or something. Something like that. I mean, <laughs> almost to the point, like, who would want that? But obviously the, the goal is if there's something in your life which – Let's just go ahead and clear this up. Everybody that comes into a church service has something that they need to either get right or get refocused or grow in because none of us are perfect. So if the goal is I want them to move, well, there's sometimes where I've got to feel sorry about, oh, man, I've really been I've been off on this. 
But I don't have to leave and stay that way because the hope is that God is ready for me to come to him and get it right and move past it and grow. And the role of the pastor is to continue to help them to find that because, again, another great passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26, Paul is explaining to Timothy his role. And he says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive. Okay, And, and, and that can be from the pulpit, out of the pulpit. And you and I both know God bless the church and the people of and God's people, but we're all people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the hardest people in the world to deal with are the church people, right? <laughs> but also some of the most the greatest blessings in your life are the church people. So right. that needs to be said also. But I'm saying I think Paul wrote that in there because he knows that's going to be an issue. You can't you you, you must not strive. You gotta work against becoming a striver in the pulpit, out of the pulpit. But be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. There's the key. That means there will be people in the fellowship whose way of life, they are hurting themselves. For the love of all good and common sense, they cannot understand that if they would just stop doing it, just stop it, Yep. they could, they could free themselves up from, from so much heartache and, and strife in their own lives. Paul says, in meekness, instruct those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That's a, that's a massive thing right there. That's, a, that's, that's what you want. That's what we're after. I mean, at the end of it all, why are we standing in the pulpit? Why are we proclaiming on the radio? Why do we do these things for the church? It is so this will become true for them, that those who are stuck, that those who are Walking into a wall, back and forth, boom, boom, boom. I don't understand why my life won't work. Boom, boom. We're, we're, we're longing for the day that the truth will find its way into their heart and God will give them repentance. They have to acknowledge the truth. And the end of that is this, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. It is not out of line to say that we have people in the church who have been taken captive by the devil. Devil To the, the analogy we used a few days ago, last week sometime, they're like POWs. Mm-hmm. They're the POWs that have been taken, and they've just surrendered. Yep. They're just living a miserable existence, hoping that one day when Jesus comes back, we'll be delivered from all this. You know, we, we don't, That's not how we're supposed to live. Not at all. I can't help but think while you were talking about the role that we play and the people that are walking into a wall, and it strikes me as like, have you ever seen a bird? fly into a glass door over and over and over. Like I was at like my great aunt's house or something one time. She lived up in the mountains and there was, it, it, the bird just kept doing it. And you, you want to be like, what, what, what are you doing? I can see the door. Well now, you know, obviously the bird couldn't see the door. And that's what it is with, with church members and other people in our life. They're banging their head and they can't see what is obvious to us. And so when we speak against that, we hope that they open the door and quit doing that. But unfortunately, sometimes there's anger, there's resentment, and there's the continual damage that keeps being done. And it's not the person's fault that's saying, hey, buddy, there's a door there. But it's that, it's that snare of Satan. It's that, it's that trap, and they're not even aware of the wall that they're banging into. And the thing is that they're not only hurting themselves, but the Scriptures also will show us that 
unrepentant hearts in the church are a great hindrance to the entire church. Right. You know, Paul, again, goes on. I, I read 2 Corinthians 7 earlier, but in chapter 12, verse 19 through 21, again, thank you that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak before God in Christ. Paul's saying, you need to understand, I, I don't owe apologies for my preaching. Not when I know that I am standing before God in Christ. My position is in Christ, and before God I stand and proclaim this truth to you. But we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not. Lest there be debates, envyings, wrath, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults, and lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and that I shall be well, many which have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Paul is saying that this strife and this conflict and this being at each other or you being at me and me feeling on the outs with you, you know where this is coming from? Unrepentant hearts. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that he calls out, and I know Corinth, we understand Corinth to, be, to have been a, a city of much debauchery and sensuality and it was a carnal place, but I don't think Corinth is the only one. And it's interesting that Paul calls out these three things as the things they haven't repented of, uncleanness, fornication, lasciviousness. Now, we don't have time to break all those down today. Maybe we can pick this back up on tomorrow's broadcast, but those are some major charges against the church. And, and this really helps us understand this is a real need in our life. And certainly, being on the way of the devout heart, this is a practice we want to have in our life, living in a way of true repentance, seeking course correction. So tomorrow we'll work through uh, the rest of these verses and kind of get some direction on how we go about doing this. And we thank you for joining us on today's program. We hope that you'll tune in with us each and every day right here on Daybreak Devotions as Pastor Mike and I will discuss various topics in God's Word. If you've got any questions, comments, we would love to hear from you at daybreakdevotion at gmail.com.